gas is flowing from the buildings now. There's cars toppled, buildings entirely just crushed and crumbled. I'm not sure if it's safe to report from my vantage point. I I really need to leave. So the fences informed me that the surrounding areas are, are in ruin. I I see some people running now. And the opinion of this reporter, if this nation, or in fact the world, ever needed heroes, that time is now. That time is now. podcast of AquamanShrine.com and FirestormFan.com. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag, and along with me as always is my co-host, Mr. Rob Kelly. How's it going? Howdy, Shag. Let me tell you, folks, we have got an exciting show for you today. And we say that every time, but we really mean it this time. <laughs> All those other times we were kidding. Now, um, No, we weren't kidding. We were just ended up being wrong. Yeah. <laughs> Well, folks, we have got an interview today with none other than Dan Jurgens. Uh, amazing. Now, we're going to get to that in just a second. But first, uh, for anybody who's here coming to the Fire and Water Podcast for the first time, shame just to on you. A- Shame on you, right? But just to give you a quick background, this is um, this this podcast is a collaborative effort between FirestormFan.com and AquamanShrine.com. Uh, each one of our sites celebrates those individual characters from DC Comics uh, from a fan perspective. And, uh, you know, it's really there to help uh, boost the profile of the character and, and share our total nerdy love of those characters. Absolutely. And you can find Firestorm Fan. I already said the site, but you can also find Firestorm Fan and Aquaman Shrine both on Twitter and Facebook uh, and Google Plus, all under those same names, Firestorm Fan, Aquaman Shrine. You can also find Firestorm Fan on Tumblr. So, anyway, go out there, check us out on the social medias, and say hi. So, Dan Jurgens, folks... Um, if you don't know who Dan Jurgens is, shame on you. You really don't deserve to be listening to this podcast. You should turn it off now because you're, you're just not worthy. And to new but, listeners, this is what we do: is we berate the audience as we. Start. <laughs> um, Dan Jurgens is both a comic book writer and artist. He's written and drawn most every major title published by DC and Marvel. He's probably best known for creating the superhero Booster Gold and logging a ten-year run as the writer and artist on Superman. Uh, that's including the best-selling Death of Superman, for which he won the National Cartoonist Society Award for Best in Comic Book Division. Now, back in 2000, Dan did a year-long stint on Aquaman, 
where he crafted some fantastic and really memorable tales for the King of Atlantis. If you haven't seen those, uh, read those, definitely go check those out. Uh, More recently, Dan was very heavily involved with DC Comics' New 52 launch. He started by writing Justice League International, which included Booster Gold, and he drew Green Arrow, featuring a really dynamic new vision for the, the Emerald Archer. Dan followed that up with a return to Superman, in which he wrote and drew. And now, here we go. This is why you're here, folks. Dan has moved on to Firestorm. He's going to be bringing us a bold new direction to everybody's favorite nuclear man, uh, starting with issue number 13, which is due in stores on October 24th. Yes, that's uh, October 24th. It's only a couple of days away at this point. It's very exciting. Yeah, so and it, it was incredibly nice of Dan to come here on the show and talk to us. He's very generous with his time, very generous with his answers. Um, he's very forthcoming about the book and, you know, what's what's at stake, and it's Man, it's it's going to be a great run on Firestorm. And, um, folks, I mean, I, I guess with that, Rob, we'll just go right into it. Yeah. Oh, I did want to mention, uh, thanks for giving me the chance, Jack, that uh, I, uh, I have interviewed Dan <laughs> previously, uh, twice before, once for the Aquaman Shrine, talking about, of course, his run on Aquaman, which Jack mentioned. And uh, I also interviewed him for my treasurycomics.com site because he wrote the Superman Fantastic Four Treasury Edition. And he was also kind enough to contribute to the Aquaman 70th birthday celebration post, which we did last year. So um, Dan has always been a, a you know a great guy to me personally. And you know every time I, I needed to talk to him about some project that I was geeking out over, he was uh, always more than willing to talk to me. So we really appreciate the, I really appreciate that, and I was uh, glad to see we're continuing uh, that tradition here with uh, with his appearance on the Fire and Water podcast. Yeah, I mean. Uh- I got to tell you guys, I'm right now. I'm just floating on cloud nine. It was such a great interview. Um, Dan was so cool, and it's. I just feel that much more excited about the direction Firestorm's going. Uh, the book's in great hands. It's going to be a great run. If if you're an if you're an Aquaman fan, what we call Aquanauts, and you haven't tried the Firestorm book, you know what? Issue thirteen is the perfect time to give it a shot. Yep. Give it a give it a try. It's a uh, well. You know what? We, we'll just let Dan explain it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I guess one other thing we should mention is if uh, you want to send us an email, you can uh, send it, send it to firewaterpodcast.net. You can also follow our the show's Tumblr feed, which is fireandwaterpodcast.tumblr.com. And feel free to stop by our sites, firestormfan.com and aquamanshrine.com, and leave comments on these posts. Absolutely. So I guess uh, without further ado, here is our talk with Dan Jerkins. Hi, everybody. Uh, Shag and I are here with the legendary comics creator Dan Jurgens, who was kind enough to be on the show to talk about his upcoming takeover of the new Firestorm series. Uh, so we're going to get right to the questions. Uh, Dan, first of all, I said, thanks for doing the show. Happy to be here. Outstanding. Uh, let's see. Well, I guess, Shag, do you want to go first? Yeah, sure. Dan, um, we're curious. How did you first get interested in reading comics, and what were some of your favorites? Oh, gosh. Well, I, for me... Um you know, I've been around a while, so it goes back <laughs> away. But honestly, I got interested in reading comics because of the Batman TV show in the 60s. And it boiled down to uh, one summer night when I'm walking down the street of the neighborhood. And at that time, you know, like all the kids in the neighborhood were watching Batman on TV. And I saw a couple of older guys, uh, you know, great big giant middle school type guys, and they were sitting on the... Uh, front steps of a house, and they had these stacks of what turned out to be comics. You know, I kind of walked up there and said, oh, what's going on? What are you guys doing? And they had these comics, and lo and behold, there were Batman comics there. And the fact that 
you know, I knew who Superman was, I knew who Batman was and all that stuff, but I had never really known about comic books. So all of a sudden, there was that, that incredible stack of four-color magic sitting right in front of me. And I sat down and started looking at them and, and sat there reading them and really was hooked from that moment on. Well, how did that translate you to eventually wanting to write and draw comics? And, and how did you break into the business? I, you know, through reading them, I always retained uh, kind of that interest in comics. And um, probably, you know, it's safe to say an interest in storytelling as well. And so uh, at the same time, I had artistic talent and was, you know, always pursuing that. And it just so happened that, you know, storytelling and artistic talent go together pretty well in terms of comics. But even then, it was, uh, as I grew older and everything, I knew I was going to make my living doing something artistic. Comics were sort of, you know, backseat kind of idea. Yeah, maybe, maybe not. I'll try a few other things and, and had a lot of general interest that way. And if I uh, leap forward to, you know, just graduating college, and Mike Grell was actually coming through town um, making a personal appearance at a comic store. And I stopped after work one night, and at that time I was working for uh, Honeywell, which was a defense contractor, and I was working in their corporate art department. And we did a lot of illustration work for the military and the space shuttle, which they were very involved with as, uh, in terms of producing flight controls and that kind of stuff. And I showed Mike the portfolio that I had, and it was, like I say, it was military stuff, it was space shuttle stuff, it was comic book stuff. And it just so happened that at that same time, they were, Mike had created and written and drawn Warlord, but at that point was only writing it. They were interested in looking at another artist anyway, so they gave me a shot, and, uh, you know, I've been around ever since. Wow. <laughs> How aware of Mike Grell's work were you before that? Like, were you were you a fan of his in particular? Was there was there oh, anybody? Yeah, very much so. No, and, and in fact, the, the reason I stopped to meet him is that I had written Mike. Uh, I had only ever written two fan letters in my life, and um, one was to Mike, and the other one was to Walter Simonson. And so, the chance to actually meet Mike was something I couldn't pass up, and I wanted to stop and meet him because Mike had very kindly. Uh, taken the time to respond with a wonderful letter of encouragement and that kind of stuff. So I wanted to stop by and show him that, hey, you know, you remember me, um, what, six, seven years ago I wrote you this letter, and here I am, and I just wanted to say thank you as much as anything. So, yeah, I had a great awareness of who Mike was and a great appreciation for his work and, you know, still do today. Were there uh, were there other comic artists you were like particularly particular uh, fan of when you were growing up? I mean, you were you were coming of the age where comic credits were just starting to come, you know, becoming a regular thing. Where they, you know, the artists were getting yeah. to sign their work and stuff. Yeah, for the most part, and certainly, I started out as more of a DC head, where it was, you know, it was Kurt Swan and it was Neil Adams, and it was very much those DC guys, and then later. You know, Dave Cockrum and Grell and Walter when he showed up to do the Manhunter stuff. But then somewhere in the middle, too, I sort of fell into the uh, Marvel end of things. And it was Kirby and it was John Buscema and so many other guys. So, you know, the influences, I always say, are just anybody you ever looked at. And in some cases, you learn, it's learning what not to do. It's, you know, I don't like this particular technique or I don't quite like how this guy handles that. So the influences come from 
what you dislike as well as what you like and what sort of naturally fits the direction you want to go in. And so, yeah, there was, I mean, I was just into it overall and into the idea of anybody who was doing it, anyone who was drawing, you know, I'd look at it and try and figure out, well, what makes this work? Why, when I look at this, do I like this better than the next guy? Or what do I like about this that makes it click? So it, it was kind of that pervasive feeling overall. Well, you, you had mentioned Warlord, uh, that you were doing Warlord uh, after with Mike. Now, within just a few years of that, you made the jump to writing, uh, creating, and, and penciling Booster Gold, which was you know, a really high-profile book at the time. How did you achieve that jump so quickly, and how would you describe that experience? Well, actually, um, you've got to step back from that a little bit. And, and this is something that, in a way, is sort of germane to the, your site and the overall conversation, which is, yeah, at DC I started on Warlord, and then I did a, a couple of issues of Batman and maybe a couple other things, but... Probably within a year after being there, I did, I drew a 12-issue Massey series that was created and written by um, Jerry Conway and Roy Thomas called Sun Devils. And Jerry was writer-editor on the book. And I was drawing it. And somewhere around, I want to say like issue six, um, Jerry, who was loaded down with work at the time, was going to continue to edit the book but had to stop writing it. Up to that point, uh, you know, Jerry and I worked plot first, then i draw it, then bounce it back to him, and he would dialogue it. And, you know, what I would do is I'd write all sorts of uh, dialogue notes in the borders, and, you know, as we talked about what would happen in the story, you know, it was, a, Jerry was, had a very collaborative sort of personality, so we'd listen to, you know, what this snot-nosed punk little new artist <laughs> would say, and, you know, we'd bounce ideas back and forth, so that when he left as writer, my first question was, well, wow, man, who are you gonna, who's going to write it? And he said, why don't you do it? It was actually Jerry who gave me my first shot to write. And wow. I, I wrote the last four or five issues of Sun Devils, and we closed that out. But that was sort of what I needed to prove to myself as well as others, that, yeah, I could do it. Obviously, I was rough, really rough, but needed some work. But that proved people that I could do it so that when I then went to D.C. a couple of months later and said, hey, I've got this idea for this character called Booster Gold. I know it sounds weird, but hear me out, <laughs> that they, they took the time to listen to me. So, I, yeah, it was actually Jerry who gave me my first shot at writing. Wow. We, uh, we, we tend to wax Jerry's car on the show a lot because he created Firestorm, and he was also pretty big on Aquaman for a long time, of course, you know, in Justice League. And so... You know, well, we just we just like you know, like worship him that much more now. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah, well, yeah. Not only that, but he was a very talented guy. So why not? I still say he wrote the single greatest uh, piece of literature in Western civilization, which is um, Justice League of America number two hundred. <laughs> and I'm barely kidding when I say that. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? I, I don't know that I would say it was the greatest, but I do remember picking it up at the time and just thinking, "This is." Fabulous. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I got to tell him that directly as one of the, one of my more proudest moments. <laughs> Good. And the restraining order still in effect. Yes, yes. Absolutely. <laughs> He's in California. I'm in New Jersey. Works out perfect. <laughs> well, speaking of Jerry Conway and the work he did, how familiar were you with Firestorm before you received uh, this assignment you're on now? And uh, any particular stories jump out in your memory? Well, I, you know, certainly. Um, 
remember buying Firestorm when I was a reader, you know, at his very first appearances. Uh, and, of course, this was before I ever got into business. And strangely enough, when I was actually working with Jerry on Sun Devils, I remember, you know, saying to him a couple of times, hey, you know, you ever need anybody to do some Firestorm? Yeah, you might want to think of me. And <laughs> obviously Raphael was doing it at the time and doing a great job. And I think, you know, right around that time, uh, that's when Pat Broderick was drawing the Firestorm graphic novel. Oh, yeah. Uh, which I don't, I don't think it was ever published. I remember seeing the pages, and it was beautiful stuff, but I don't think it was ever published. So I, I always had that um, familiarity with the character. I thought when Firestorm was in Justice League, it brought a sense of magic to the book because, you know, he was young and irreverent and, and had that sense of brashness to him that was totally lacking in the Justice League as a whole, and he certainly added some spark to the book. So, Absolutely. Yeah, and so obviously I'm very aware of the character's roots, what he was, how he interacted with the DCU, kind of what his role was in the DCU and all of that. Is that some of the flavor you're hoping to bring back? Yeah, very much so. I mean, um, as I've said a couple of times, generally, and there, there are exceptions to every rule, but generally, if you really want to find what makes a character tick, you go back to his origin, and, and that doesn't mean you know, his origin story as much as it means what did the creator mean when the creator or creators, you know, first came up with the character? What was the template? What was it supposed to accomplish? Who was he or she as a character supposed to be? And I think often when a character is around for a number of years, you know, we lose sight of that sometimes. And all of a sudden, when you go back and, and read the original stuff that Jerry and Al Milgram did, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's all there. Everything you need to find um, what should make Firestorm work, who he is, and what the book should feel like is there. And did, did you bring, just out of curiosity, did you bring any of that with you, those thoughts, processes? Because uh, you did the breakdowns, or layouts, I should say. For uh -huh. an issue with uh, for Dwayne, one of Dwayne McDuffie and Ken Lashley's issues uh, back, I don't know, five six years ago. Yeah. You, was that going through your head when you were doing those, or you know, um, a little bit, I suppose, uh, just in terms of visual flavor. But I didn't write the book at that time. Um, obviously, you know, um, it was being done by other guys, and I was just sort of brought in to help because they were running late on some things and. Oh. Uh, obviously, I knew Lashley was going to draw it, and I, you know, I wasn't there to impose my style on anyone. Basically, what I did was break down the story that uh, McDuffie had written, and you know, set it up in such a way that Lashley could then take it to full pencils. But at the same time, I think if you look at it, my storytelling style is there, and and some of what I do is try and highlight the character in such a way that their personality, you know, comes through a little bit in the art. So, yeah, there's, there's certainly a small aspect to it. But it's, it's one of the issues from that run that's uh, very fondly remembered by a lot of the fans. So uh, I think your influence is definitely felt. Now, um, now you got, got to go for a fanboy question here. Do you have any favorite Firestorm rogues? Mm, Killer Frost is hard to beat, and so is... Um, I think Multiplex has potential. Okay. Uh, to, to be something, um, you know, I think uh, Plastique, there's something interesting there. And I, if we can consider Firehawk a rogue, 
Uh, I always like Firehawk. I don't think there's anything there to work with right now um, mm-hmm. based on the direction we're going in with the book. But, you know, when you get down to it, Firestorm has had a rather interesting and, and successful rogues gallery that offers some potential. Where's Slipknot in that list? <laughs> Slipknot exists on a pedestal so high that I feel unqualified to even think of writing Slipknot. You'll get there someday, Dan. You'll get there someday. Uh, I can only hope, and it's good for us all to have goals in life. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, the fans at home are going to love that. There we go. Uh, so, you, know, uh, what, you know what, though? Seriously? Um, I, I have been playing around with the way to use Slipknot a little bit, just because I do like the name. And, um, you know, there, there is, yeah, maybe, maybe we'll see something. Let's put it that way. Okay. Okay. I had these terrible thoughts of, uh, risk who I love is your, one of your characters you created for the teen Titans who unfortunately lost an arm. And, uh, you mean the character that Jeff Johns has always done his best to annihilate, dismember and destroy? Well, uh, Slipknot lost an arm also, so I was thinking about, you know, there's the potential that maybe Risk becomes the new Slipknot or something like that. Okay. That's all continuity. It's all on the table in the new 52. There you go. That's right. Yeah, yeah. anything goes. (laughs) Well, speaking of the new 52 and all that, your story is going to take the characters in a very different direction than previous issues of Fury of Firestorm. Mm -hmm. So what changes should long-term readers expect, and what reasons can you give a new reader to try the book for the first time? Uh, long-term readers, I think, will recognize uh, perhaps a more familiar sort of firestorm story. And here again, what I talked about earlier in terms of, you know, what made firestorm work originally and, and how did it function? What was the atmosphere of the book? You know, that kind of stuff that I do want to recapture that feel a little bit. You know, we're talking about um, in terms of Ronnie and Jason – a couple of guys who are high school students. And that brings a certain sense of humor to the book. It brings a certain sense of angst to the book and, and drama. And and by that I mean it's just, you know, when you're an adult and someone doesn't call you by such and such a time, like, you know, like they're supposed to, you just go, ah, they got busy. High school kids tend to say, oh, my God, they hate my guts. <laughs> so-and-so didn't give me a call. She must hate me. She's not going out with me on Friday night. Everything takes on that heightened sense of drama, you know, and angst. So I think that will be somewhat familiar to long-time readers. And in terms of new readers, I would like to think that that same dynamic will appeal to you. Um, you know, I don't think it's any secret that, in a way, I think Jerry and Al have often said that when they first created uh, Firestorm that he was supposed to fulfill kind of a Spider-Man-esque role in the DC universe. Absolutely. And I think that is absolutely accurate, and I think when he functioned at his best, he did that. So, you know, um, great minds think alike, and certainly those guys' minds are greater than mine, so why don't I follow that original template? <laughs> So if we're talking high school, uh, typical, you know, um, classic trademark high school superhero moves, I mean, are we talking about, and I'm not looking for spoilers, but I mean, are we talking about like, you know, trying to balance superheroics with grades and protecting secret identities and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. Very good. Yeah. And and, and for example, if you're going to tell me that, um, 
Jason is a 4.0 student who's who's the brainy guy and is from such a background that what's important is his, in his life is getting those scholarship those academic scholarships to get into college. You know, that's going to be his primary interest. With Ronnie, if you're going to tell me that he is the athlete, he is the jock, grades are less important to him, um, but he's from the same economic background where getting that athletic rather than academic scholarship is important to him. Obviously, those things complicate being Firestorm, who is a character that, you know, flies all over the world, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, all of that... All that comes into it. It's sort of like that sense of fun, that sense of soap opera and real life uh, is what will, that's what will make Firestorm himself seem a little more realistic and the story's more fun. Very cool. And uh, speaking of world trotting and things like that, you know, what immediately comes to mind is like Justice League and things like that. Are are we going to see Firestorm interacting with the rest of the DCU or the other New 52 titles anytime? Uh, Firestorm will be reacting and interacting and a part of the DCU, yes, in in more of a direct way than he probably was his first 12 issues or so, yeah. Uh, if you can say, are you talking about within the book or outside of the book? That'll be happening. Um, we're, it's going to start within the book, and we're talking about a couple of different out- ideas that will take place outside the book. Very cool. That's exciting. So. Yes, um, Well, I know a lot of fans have just been dying, waiting for Firestorm to sort of explode out of his own book. I mean, there was the original teaser poster with the Justice League, and Firestorm was in the the perimeter. And then when they announced there was going to be another Justice League book, and I I know a lot of match heads were crossing their fingers, and, you know, we were a little disappointed we didn't see him on the team. So uh, hoping to see see some movement for him in there. Yeah, I think that would be a good move. And obviously uh, everything can't happen overnight. But, yeah, there are certainly some – external ideas that we're working on. Very cool. That's exciting. So for you as a writer and an artist, what aspects of Firestorm do you enjoy the most as far as the writing and the drawing? And, and what aspects do you find the most challenging? Uh, what do I enjoy? Well, in terms of a writer, one of the things I enjoy most is that, and to me this is just fun, when Firestorm is out doing his thing, and this gets into writing 101 a little bit, if you're writing a loner character, uh, who is out there doing his thing? How do you want to deal with that? Does he is he like Spider-Man, for example, where he carries on a constant barrage of dialogue with the villain? Um, is he like dark and mysterious, like Batman, where if he if you get anything, it's first-person caps? Uh, <laughs> is it like Booster, where he's got skeets around to talk to? Do you go with thought balloons? One of the things that's fun with Firestorm is just the dialogue between he and Jason. Between Firestorm or Ronnie, shall we say, the Ronnie persona and the Jason persona, and how that plays out. It was like that in the beginning with um, Ronnie and Professor Stein, that it gives you a way to transmit both the feel of the character as well as, you know, story information to the reader. And, and I just enjoy that. It's fun. It was, it makes for a good dynamic. Uh, in terms of drawing the book, Firestorm is a lot of fun to draw. That you know, a couple of times when the guys at DC have said, well, what do you want to do next? What do you like to do? And um, typically I think I'm sort of thought of as working on Justice League-type characters and Justice League-level characters. 
But I always like guys who can fly. I like guys who have some sense of scope in terms of their power and stuff they can do. So from that standpoint, Firestorm just absolutely fits what I like to do anyway and what kind of, you know, fits into my wheelhouse a little bit. Now, did you design the new costume look, or was that Yildre Sonar that designed it? No, I, I don't know if Sonar did it for sure or not, um, only because as things worked through, you know, sometimes it was Jim Lee who did some of the costume stuff, sometimes it mm. was somebody else. I did not do it. That's that's all I can tell you for sure. Okay, gotcha. But I did, I did say that, you know, when we first started talking about this, that uh, I wanted to go back to doing a singular firestorm not you know the firestorm core and that i wanted something more traditional in terms of his look very cool it's, 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 which, which i got everything i wanted except the puffy sleeves <laughs> <laughs> well you know i i i'm i'm I know the guy who's drawing the book. Maybe those could just sort of work their way in after a couple issues. <laughs> <laughs> now, the new costume looks great, and uh, your, the covers that we've seen you, that you've released look just fantastic. And, and fire, he, it really, you know, Firestorm is back. The traditional-looking Firestorm is back. It's a little updated, but, wow, he looks phenomenal. Great, so, thank you. How, um, how far along have you plotted the series? Uh, we are plotted up through, well, you know, let's talk about semantics a little bit. In terms of direction, we're set up through 20. Uh, in terms of script, 16 is in, uh, 17 is coming yet this week, and as we speak, even now I am drawing page 5 of issue 15. So, oh, wow. Um, wow. you know, we're, we're moving right ahead. You can multitask that well. You can draw and talk on the phone. I'm impressed. Well, yeah, there are places where it actually works out okay. <laughs> Um, no, maybe you can. Uh, maybe you can't answer this, Tim. But I'm just sort of curious about. Uh, we know that that Firestorm is one of the books that, in terms of its sales, was probably you know right on the cusp of of, uh, of being jettisoned. You know, with along of the mm-hmm. lot of the other titles like OMAC and, and some of the other ones. Uh, but obviously, you know, DC wanted to give it another shot. You know, they didn't. They didn't just get rid of it. Is there when when you're when they sit you down and you're talking with them? Is is there a kind of directive of, of them saying, you know, look, we have to get it to a certain point to sustain this, or is it not quite so spelled out? Is it more, uh, you know, look, we just want to give this book a chance, and we think you could do a good job, and, and, and just kind of go from there? No one has given me any kind of a, a hard number that it has to hit or anything else. I think um, they realize where it's at and how it kind of sets up. And I know in my conversations with Dan and Bob, um it started, the conversation started with, you know, fix it. And, okay. you know, first you try and do that, and then you start to see where can you go from here, what is possible to do. And uh, it, it's sort of like, you know, if the ship is sinking and you're bailing water uh, and the engine is broken, you can't move forward or anything else, well, you know, first pump the water out of the boat, make sure it's not sinking anymore, and then what can you do to go forward? So, all of our conversations really did, you know, work around the idea of let's just fix it, let's stabilize it, let's set it up in terms of how, you know, we think it has a platform that allows the character himself just to exist and be in a better place. That's, you know, the first part of the task, and then the second part, we'll, we'll deal with that when we get there. 
the uh, <laughs> your, uh, your your mentioning of water makes the perfect segue <laughs> to my next question, um, and that of course you know you have written now both Aquaman and Firestorm solo books. Um, is there a you know now that you've now that you've done both for a little bit is is there a different approach that you might take to writing, you know, what you would consider a quote unquote Firestorm story as opposed to writing, you know, an Aquaman story or, you know, virtually any other character for that matter? Is there, um, I'm not sure I understand the question. Try it again. Um, I guess is there are certain elements I get, like if you're writing a Superman story, you know, I, I would, as you of course have done, you know, you're, you're, you've got your settings, you've got Metropolis, you've got Lois Lane, you've got a certain amount of, you know, there's a scope to a Superman story that maybe a Batman story doesn't have. Um, so mm-hmm. when you were writing Aquaman, and now that you're writing, you know, Firestorm, did you do you go into it with a, a sort of like there are some stories that fit better because uh, because of the, the the world that Firestorm inhabits as opposed to say Aquaman? Uh, do, you, do you have like those oh, presets okay. going in? Yeah. Well, I think um, you, you know it's interestingly enough. Uh, when they asked me to do Aquaman, the you know it was sort of in the same place. That yeah, it was a fix it, another fix now. it thing, right? Yeah, and and um, what I tried to do with Aquaman there again is, you know, what makes Aquaman unique, and how did I see the character, and what did I think could be done to make him work? And for me, uh, at that time, what I thought made Aquaman unique was that he was a king, and he had a kingdom. Okay, I mean, you, in terms of the Justice League, no one else did, really. So <laughs> let's play with that. And what I wanted to do was make Aquaman this regal figure um, who cared about his people. I wanted to make Atlantis a real breeding place that somehow had to coexist with the rest of the world or not, as they might choose to do and, and all that. So, yeah, you know, I just wanted to write the story of, a, of an imperial or I'm sorry, an imperial ruler um, who is a king but does the, but who's a good guy, kind of the King Arthur take on him a little bit. So there again, it was try and find what was unique about Aquaman and find a way to make it work. And then add in all the things around him, whether it was Mira, whether it was, you know, Aqualad, whoever, um, Tempest at that time, you know, try and find the things that make the book unique, play it up and make the book work. And I got to say, for the year that I wrote Aquaman, I really enjoyed it, and I part of can, it was, I think you can tell. Well, thanks, but I mean, part of it was because, again, you know, if I think I'm not 100 percent sure of this, but I got the feeling that if I go back to that time, if I had said no, uh, they might have just canceled the book anyway. But instead, I said yeah, and we got Steve Epping to draw it. And he did this marvelous job on it. He sure did. I still remain kind of perplexed to this day that it was never collected in any way, shape, or form because I think it's a very, very credible piece of work, but I had a great time doing it, and at that same time, you know, I was writing uh, Tomb Raider, I was writing Thor, uh, I, I think I had just wrapped up on Superman, I was close to it, so I, I just had a lot of fun doing it, and it was in part because you get to that time with a book where you just say, let's have fun, let's find what we can to make this book work, make the character work, make the supporting cast work. If people like it, great. And if they don't, well, we gave it our best shot. You know, you, you, you one of your lines in Aquaman number 75 um, is one of my absolute favorite Aquaman lines of all time. Um, 
I have it here, so I'm just going to read real quick. But it's Green Lantern has a power ring. Superman has a cape. Batman has an attitude and a fancy car. Me, I have an army, and I intend to use it. And that kind of okay. sums up what you were just saying. Yeah. And um, I just, I've always loved that, and I, I loved your portrayal of Aquaman in your run. Thanks. Again, I, I really enjoyed doing the character. And um, the funny thing is, they had actually come to me like a year earlier uh, when Peter first was leaving the book and everything. And it, timing-wise, it didn't work out. I had interest at that time. Um, I started thinking about it. I said, gee, I'm sorry. You know, I've got some thoughts on it, but I just can't do it right now. And then a year later, the time was right. And uh, like I say, we all had fun. And, you know, certainly uh, Steve just did, I thought, a marvelous job on the book. Steve Epting is, it's funny, it's one of those guys, who, you know, he went on to this very popular run on Captain America. A lot of his, I think a lot of his later fans don't even know he ever did Aquaman. <laughs> well, yeah, or even um, uh, we had first worked together on Superman because he, he drew that for a while while I was writing it. And and I just think he is a phenomenally incredible artist. And, uh, you know, after his run on Aquaman, he went and spent some time across Jim. And, you know, after that, went back to Marvel and has just continued to do magnificent work. You know, his Avengers run was my first time I finally made the leap to start reading Avengers, and a lot of it what brought me to it was his art. Just so good. Sure. Yeah, it was very good. He is very consistent. His characters stay on model. He's a great storyteller. And, you know, there are a lot of people in the business who I always, you know, they try and draw superhero comics. How best to phrase this? <laughs> but there's stylistically maybe it's just not right that somehow it doesn't add that sense that these characters are bigger than life that uh you know i always say that to me the best superman artist made superman they gave him sort of this regal dynamic somehow where he just commanded the page and steve could do that a lot of guys can't and so you know i got he's another one of those guys that i'd work with in a heartbeat at any given time well, I'm going to drag us back to Firestorm for one more quick question on that, and then we'll go a little more broad. So uh, I was reading the solicitation for Fury of Firestorm number 15, and it has a quote there. It says, the shocking conclusion as the first hints of a disturbing new force in the DCU were seen. So, mm-hmm. I mean, it's just the three of us here, Dan. You can level it with us. It's, it's the new 52 debut of Slipknot, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I hate to be so transparent, Um and, and give the farm away like that. But, yeah, sure, why not? <laughs> See, I, I knew it. All right. There we go. Big oh, check mark on that one, boys and girls. It's always good to have a part of the interview where the interviewee just condescends to the two moronic interviewers. It's always a good thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's always a good thing. Um, Dan, there was, was one other thing I wanted to ask as, as we were just thinking about it. Was um, And, again, I'm, I'm always sort of fascinated by the editorial side of things, maybe more than I should be. But, like, the way it works in the New 52, like, if you wanted to – guest, you know, bring in uh, a guest star in Firestorm. Like, say you wanted to bring in, oh, I don't know, Aquaman. Um, like, do you have to, like, do you have to go and, and and give some sort of supplication to Jeff Johns before you're allowed to do that? Or can you just, like, you know, I, I'm not sure what the new rules for the new 52 are. I, I, get, the, I get the feeling in pre-new 52, you could sort of add in a new character from the, the DC universe if you wanted to without a whole lot of permissions necessarily going on. Is that... Do you, are you sort of free to be able to do that now? I, 
you know, for my money, I wouldn't approach it any differently now than I ever did, which was, you know, if I go back to when I was working on, you know, Booster Gold or Superman or Justice League, like way back when, if I wanted to use another character, I would first say, you know, this would be a good issue to use Green Lantern in. And um, I would first bring it up with my own editor on on that particular, my own particular book, and then ask either the writer and or the editor of the book in question, so the character in question. And so um, this just came up two weeks ago because we're building um, a guest appearance in for someone, and no, I can't tell you who it is yet. <laughs> and I, you know, I first talked it over with my own editor, say, here's why I want to do it, here's how it makes sense of the story. And after that, I mentioned it to the other title's writer, and then, you know, we sat down, had a conference call with uh, both respective editors involved and said, you know, hey, here's what I want to do. They said, here's what you can do. Please don't do this. No problem. And work it out. But that's how I've always done it. So for me, there's no change. And if someone wants to say no, you know, that's fine, too. And that also happens. And it's always happened. You know, following up on that post-continuity to New 52 continuity, um, like, let's talk about Superman and Booster Gold. Now, I mean, you're very well known for writing and drawing both those characters. Did you feel there was a difference between, um, or what, what would you say are some of the primary differences between the way you used to do them and the way you've done them more recently in the New 52? Well, I, um, I don't think there was so much of a difference between Booster Gold uh, before the New 52 and now in terms of the personality, the background, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. That you know, when the New 52 launched, there were clearly some characters that I think had gotten to the point where they had accumulated uh, so much weight that that had to be scraped off, changed, repaired, <laughs> done away with, whatever it might be. I always said, actually, that Green Arrow was somewhat an example of that because we had, back when I had drawn Green Arrow in the late 80s, early 90s, we saw him have a birthday every year. It was 45, it was 46, blah, blah, blah. Got his arm cut off, he died, he came back. And, you know, the, the Green Arrow background got very, very loaded up in terms of continuity. So I think in light of what DC wanted out of the character and everything else, that was a character where, yeah, you had to roll him back, you know, 20 years age-wise, make him younger, uh, make him a little more fresh and, and find something to make it work. Clearly, you know, Batman hasn't changed that much, and I don't think that Booster Gold had to change because he was still fairly true. You know, this goes back to my conversation about what was a character created to be, how did he fit with that? Well, Booster was still, you know, very, very consistent non-model with his basic beginnings. Mm -hmm. um, so it depends on the character, and... So as I wrote Booster in terms of Justice League International, no, I didn't feel there was a great difference there. With Superman, yeah, there were some obvious differences. Uh, you've worked, uh, you know, you've had a lot of different people ink you over the years as in your role as a, a penciler. Do you change how you do some of the penciling depending on who you think is going to be inking it? Are there people who you have a little more of a rapport with and so you can be a little looser with or, or anything like that? Oh, yeah, by all means. I mean, um, if you know... As, an, as a penciler, that a Klaus Janssen or a Jerry Ordway are going to be inking the book. Those guys are so artistically sound and so uh, stylistically unique 
and with such a tremendously solid footing in the way they work and how they approach it that, you know, to a certain degree, the less you give them, the better off it is. And when I say less, I mean, um, you know, like Jerry has his own lighting technique tricks that he likes to use. You might just indicate a little bit where you want that to be and and give him an idea for feel in terms of what the light source is, how it's going to work, and then let him actually uh, provide the final solution in the tanks. And with Klaus, because his line is so dynamic and electric, uh, it's it's kind of the same thing where, you know, you don't worry too much about line weight and line thickness as you pencil it, because Klaus is going to do his thing anyway. Right. And, <laughs> you know, and that's great. I mean, to me, that's a, a great benefit to have, that that personality is there that is going to add that to the book. Uh, and there are guys like that. On the other hand, you know, Ray McCarthy is inking me on Firestorm now. He's doing beautiful, beautiful work. But Ray and I haven't really worked together a lot before. And um, so with that in mind, I'm giving Ray more detail. And because what you want to get to is the point where Ray as anchor sort of understands some of my visual shorthand a little bit, that he understands by some of the indicators of how I want things to go, where I want them to be, how I want them to look, what the line weight should be, how the figure should separate off the background, et cetera, et cetera. And that only comes with working together for a while. And, you know, Norm Ratman and I had have done a tremendous amount of work together, and Norm automatically knows that by now because eventually you work together so much you and the anchor develop almost like a telepathic communication <laughs> happens on the page. And Norm and I have that, and that's what I'm working to develop with Ray right now. Right. Um, are there uh, what uh, what what comics are you are you reading right now? If if any, what comics am I reading? Yeah. Uh, gosh. Well, you know, just by virtue of where we at, we are at, uh, reading everything that um, DC does. Just because I you know it's new now, I have to know what's going on. <laughs> I pick up. You know, all the Avengers and main Avenger character titles at Marvel, um, you know, continue to be amazed at how well they pulled everything together on that stuff. And uh, certainly, you know, when I was doing Captain America, for example, I thought in many ways that was the hardest book I ever had to write. And I remain amazed that after I left, other guys really figured it out and made it work better than I did. And whether it, and of course, I also tend to read the books of guys I'm friends of. So, again, to mention Epting or Butch Geis and the stuff they're doing on Cap and Winter Soldier and everything else, uh, certainly keeping up with that. Um, enjoyed Saga very much as it has gone so far. Um, mm. I've always been reading The Boys from Dynamite. Hate to see that come to an end because it's always a kind of a guilty pleasure, so to speak. Um, and there are more than I'm sure I'm for just for getting offhand. So. Quite a you, lot, actually. You mentioned some of the guys you said you consider friends. Uh, now, the, if, if, I, if I call it right, most of those were primarily artists. Do you, do you consider yourself an artist first or a writer first? I consider myself to be somewhat unique <laughs> in that <laughs> regard. And when people ask me, I just say I'm a storyteller. I, I don't consider myself a writer first, uh, but I don't know that I consider myself an artist first either. I just, I'm kind of me and I do my thing. And I, I probably do exist in a somewhat <laughs> unique spot. 
Well, you certainly earn the right to call yourself whatever you'd like. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, so have you. <laughs> oh. People call me a lot of things. Oh, that was meant as a compliment. I was actually. I was telling, uh, no, I appreciate that. Thank you. I was telling people what I was going to be doing today, and uh, at my office, and and, uh, and they they don't read comics. They don't know our the world that we you know travel and everything. But you know, you mentioned the death of Superman, and they all know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, so, it's it's uh, it's amazing that that's still. Yeah, you know, still resonates with people. Absolutely. Now, now, looking back at all the work you've amassed, you know, in your career, what are you what are you most proud of? What do you consider a high point, both personally and creatively? Um, yeah, yeah, different things fit the pattern, and um, you know, booster goal the first time around was real highlight just because I did it. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, I think if you go back and look at those 25 issues, you obviously saw a writer who was learning on the job, yet you still see something of a uh, – you get the feeling that um, there is something that's developing there, both in terms of the character and the writer, and I think that comes through in the work. Um, but so that is something. You know, Zero Hour was such a tremendously – complicated thing to do in such a short amount of time with five issues to happen that quick that, you know, that was something I'm very proud of as well and was, you know, very happy that it could come together to the extent that it did. Um, If you go back and have any memory of it, Zero Hour was five issues long. It shipped weekly. It came out in one month's time. Uh, that's hard to pull off when you're writing it and drawing it. And as well as because it was a major crossover, a lot of stuff comes into it. Uh, and at the same time, it was great because I also did Superman Zero that shipped that same month. I think I had uh, six of the top ten books on the sales charts, and I don't think <laughs> anyone will ever do that again. <laughs> yeah, right. The Beatles of comic books. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, you know, I, I pulled that one off. Um, you know, and obviously... With Superman, it's not just the death of Superman. Uh, it was a great thing and a, very much a team effort. But as I look back at it, whenever you work on a book, you'd like to say that you left something there of durable value, and you like to think that you left it in a better place than what it was in when you found it. And I don't know if I could necessarily say that about Superman because it was in a good place when I got there, but certainly left a lot there for people to work from later and um, made a lasting impression on readers. There, I don't do, to this day, I don't do a convention or store appearance that I don't have at least one person come up to me, at least one, and say, it was the death of Superman that got me into reading comics. And, in fact, I just did a convention this past weekend, and three different people came up and said that. And I just turned to the person next to me and said, you know, it makes me think that if not for the death of Superman, we wouldn't even have comics today because I think I'm responsible for about a 33 years of And I'm joking when I say that, but that was there. Um, also proud of the uh, Thor work that I did uh, because I think, you know, did Thor for some, days, some issues, and I think it was good, solid stuff that made an effective transition over the course of the series from being one type of book do a different kind of book, and then even get another kind of a book a little bit. So, so there's that, and then um, yeah, and then just 
you know, being able to do Booster the second time around was a lot of fun as well. I was really excited to see that they collected Booster in a showcase. So now the original run, at least, so people could get their hands on that nowadays. Yeah. It's such a fun series. And, you know, I didn't even think about it until you were just talking that Zero Hour, you know, begat zero, the first round of Zero Month, and we've just finished the second round of Zero Month. So yeah, exactly right. I didn't, you know, I mean, the, the idea you guys had to do that back then had to dramatically influence the idea to have this one around. Uh, I don't know that it necessarily did, but I would imagine so to a certain degree because a lot of the same sentiment was there. And when we did it the first time, the idea was, was okay, guys, and when I say guys, I mean, you know, speaking to my fellow creators at the time, here's your issue zero. And this gives you your, we can provide that and get you, uh, a higher rate of reader sampling than you're going to get otherwise. And you've got one issue where you're going to get an extra 25 30% readers than what you normally have. You know, give it your best. Put it on display, who your character is, why he does what he does, who the supporting cast is. Set it up with some stuff that you can springboard into new stories to keep people interested and get them to come back and buy the next one. And, you know, some people bit it and some people didn't, and, you know, that's kind of the way you roll the dice sometimes. But the platform was there. If someone wanted to really take advantage of it. Absolutely. And then uh, just one last comment from me, and this is just a, uh, a fanboy thank you. You had mentioned for stuff beyond just uh, the death of Superman and, and the lasting mark you left on those books. I, the whole team, everybody you guys worked with, I, one of the greatest things for me that you guys added to the Superman mythos is just that relationship between Lois and Clark. And yeah. that just meant so much for me as a reader all the way through. So It was, you know, it was fun and it was sort of unique at the time because obviously we ended up progressing all the way through the wedding and everything. Um, and I think that, you know, in coming back to the book the second time around, not having that was obviously one of the greater differences. And that's a huge difference that that relationship doesn't exist right now as it did then. And it's not to say one is right and one is wrong, but to go back to that time, you know, obviously we were able to take that relationship build it and develop it over the course of the books and, you know, take it to the next level in a couple of ways. And, yeah, I thought it was really the spine of the stories. I mean, when you do something like the death of Superman, you have to have Lois there reacting to it. You needed to really make it work. We needed to see the reactions of Lois and the Kents as well. And, it is, you know, I I never saw Clark as a Kryptonian. I always saw him as human. Uh, obviously, he was Kryptonian, but he was born and raised here, and that's who he was. I never saw him as feeling like a loner or anything else. As long as he had Lois, as long as he had the Kents, he wasn't a loner. Mm. Making me miss it that much more now. You're right. I mean, ne- neither one's right or wrong, but uh, gosh, that is... I was a huge, huge reader of Superman for years and years and years. So, um, Well, besides the Firestorm stuff you got coming up, are there, are there any other projects you're working on right now? Not that I'm actively working on. There's a couple things that we're talking about, and that always happens. Sometimes it comes off, and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it'll change into something else. Uh, but for the most part, right now, because Firestorm, whenever you take on a new book, 
it always takes longer to write it. It always takes longer to draw it, <laughs> you know, because you're just not into the flow yet. You're still, you know, when you take on a new book as an artist, you're still erasing a little more than you do as, <laughs> as if you've been doing it for five or six issues. And that's true writing as well, where you go back and change things and are manipulating things and moving things around. So right now, writing and drawing Firestorm uh, is plenty to keep me busy. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, Dan, I wanted to, I would ask you one other thing. You mentioned going to Comic-Cons and, and Booster Gold. Have you uh, encountered Booster Gold uh, cosplay while you've been at a convention? Oh, yeah, a tremendous amount of it. In <laughs> fact, what I find real interesting is I would bet the breakdown between uh, male and female is probably about 50-50. I, I run into a tremendous amount of young women who are dressed up as Booster Gold. And I, I don't necessarily know why that is, but... They're really authentic and genuine and enthusiastic, and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, I wanted to mention that because at the last convention I was at, there was there were two women dressed as uh, Booster Gold and Blue Beetle, and uh, and and one of them, uh, actually one of the cons I went to, she actually had a uh, like a stuffed skeets oh. attached oh, yeah, okay. attached to her shoulder, which I just thought was genius. Yeah. Now, which con was that? Uh, the one I saw the stuffed skeets at was at the Philadelphia, the Wizard World Philly show. In, okay, in I think I ran into her someplace else. Okay. There have been the, the really creative ones do try and come up with a skeet somehow. And there have been a couple of versions of skeets that have actually, you know, made it out there. There has been the uh, stuffed one. Um, th- there have been a couple that have made it out there in different ways. And the one that no one has done, okay, and now that I say this out loud, <laughs> someone's going to do it. If I were going to try and come up with skeets, I would actually – you know, find a way to manufacture a lightweight one out of plastic or something, some kind of lightweight material. And then I'd find a way to attach it to a wire or something like that so it looked like it was hovering next to me. There you go. You'd then have, you know, you'd have to find a way to attach it to your arm or your body somehow. But I think there's a way that it could be done. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so there's a challenge, folks. Go forth and do it. <laughs> Especially if you did the original booster costume with the high, you know, sort of Elvis-esque collar. You know, right. You could hide the wire under that somehow. <laughs> How rewarding is that to see one of uh, you know something you created there in front of you in physical form? It's always fun. I mean, um, it's it's fun to see that stuff happen. It's it's uh, not just in cosplay, but you know when Booster shows up in the animated form on TV, that is fun. Uh, when he shows up in live action on Smallville, like he did, that's fun. Um, the potential series that's in development and all that stuff, that's fun. But to see people actually walking around at a, at a con dress up that way, it is uh, – I take it as a compliment. I get a big kick out of it and enjoy every bit of it. I, I was just at Dragon Con. There was a young lady named Shelly who was uh, cosplaying Booster Gold, one of the better ones I've seen. She looked great. And she wasn't just doing the costume. She was totally into it. She was walking around, signing autographs, and just – Totally playing the you know the 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 ego character the booster out there for the fame and uh, okay so here's the real test did mm-hmm. you have a legion flight ring oh you know what I would uh, I've, t- I've got some photos I'll have to check I'll send I'll send <laughs> them to you. I'll send I, I've you. told a couple of them that that's the detail that they've missed they've got the costume they've got the gauntlets they've got the wrist blasters or whatever and I'll say where's the flight ring. <laughs> And it's the one thing they overlook that is easily solved because there have been flight rings made. 
Well, I will uh, I will send you a link to the pictures, and folks, I'll put in the show notes. Uh, oh, great! A, a link so you can see a picture of Shelly as Booster because she was she was great. And you know that same theory of the the the, the wire with the with the skeets. We had a yep. writer or we had a listener write in who said that a similar concept for a firestorm. They could someone could cosplay a firestorm and build like a translucent head of either the pre- professor or Jason to be floating above them in a creepy ghostly way. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Shag, that's interesting. Shag yeah. if you'll remember, that was my idea. That was your idea? Yes. Oh, no. Oh, see, I, I tune most of what you yeah, say. Yeah, I know. I understand. Okay. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, save it for later, boys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's, let's not drag Dan into this, Shag. Well, we're, what we are going to drag Dan into is our lightning round of questions. <laughs> so we're going to put something roughly of uh, 60 seconds on the clock here. Dan, we've got a series of questions prepared for you. Are you ready, sir? You fire away. Okay. Which of Green Arrow's trick arrows is the most useless? Boxing glove. <laughs> Which Legionnaire is the most fun to draw? Uh, most fun to draw. Uh, I always enjoy drawing Alter Boy and that sort of that original version because his boots are the most unique. No one else has boots <laughs> like with weird dollops on them. And uh, the Cochran Dream Girl. Oh, okay, nice. yeah. Uh, which is Booster Gold's true kryptonite, fame or beautiful women? Women. <laughs> when you get down to it, yeah, it would be the women. All right. Who would you rather take your picture with, Superman with a mullet or Electric Superman? Ooh, good God. Um, <laughs> what if I'm, ab- I'm absent that day? Yeah, okay. You Can can we stop the clock? <laughs> we'll, we'll pause the clock. Okay, uh, on the mullet, oh, on the mullet, I never called it a mullet. I never really drew it. As, uh, the other guys all drew much longer hair on Superman than I did, especially uh, John. And, for example, you, I never gave him the ponytail. Yeah. You know, uh, Grummet and Bog both gave Clark the ponytail and everything. I never did. I just sort of said, yeah, the shirt kind of went down into the back of his car, or the hair went down into the back of his collar a little bit, so... Um, I'm going to go longer-haired Superman, but it wasn't a mullet. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair, I uh, I baited you with that question. I knew what I was okay. doing when I wrote that one. <laughs> okay, start the clock and move on. There we All go. All right, uh, which action figures are on display in your office right now? Uh, I've got a couple of Booster Gold action figures, the, a couple of different ones that have come out. There was the New 52 version. Uh, there's the Kevin McGuire version. Uh, I'm still... I don't think there has been a really, really great Booster Gold action figure done yet because they've never gotten the metallic portion quite right uh, or the gold portion mixed with the blue right. It's a lighter gold. It's metallic mixed with a dark blue kind of blue on the on the suit. No one's gotten it quite right yet. Um, there's also a Doomsday, a Spider-Man, a Superman, a uh, Flash, Martian, Manhunter, and Green Lantern floating around here someplace. We're going to have to get you a Firestorm sooner or later. Yeah, I don't have one. That's true. <laughs> Who is the better quarterback, Brett Favre or Michael John Carter? Michael John Carter, because he never took pictures of his junk and sent it to his girlfriend. <laughs> we just have that to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> he, he has many uh, – he is quite capable of making many errors, but he never went so far as to, to get his privates published on Deadspin. <laughs> For those of you who don't know who Michael John Carter is, no, he's not a real NFL player. It's Booster Gold. So, well, so you say. <laughs> <laughs> you need to learn your history, folks. Um, your future history. All right. Which space monkey would win in a fight, 
Blip from Space Ghost or Gleek from the Super Friends? I got to give it to Blip from Space Ghost. <laughs> All right. Nobody likes it. For no other reason than I, when I was first exposed to him, I still thought monkeys on cartoons were cool instead of a pain in the ass. <laughs> <laughs> Gleek has a lot to live up to. Uh, and uh, finally, who is cooler, Firestorm or Aquaman? Huh. Well, <laughs> if you're just talking cool and we go by temperature, it's going to have to be Aquaman. Because oh, you know, oh. the, the temperatures he is submersed in are going to be way, way down there. Nice dodge. Nice dodge. How about that? That was impressive. <laughs> All right, Dan. Well, that's the end of our lightning round. But one last question. Finally, if you would, tell the folks at home why they should pick up The Fury of Firestorm, The Nuclear Man number 13, on October 24th. Firestorm, um, there, there were, one day I'm in the D.C. offices, and at that point, uh, Firestorm had just started as a fairly new title again. And at that time, I think was D.C.'s first ongoing into the direct market, being a direct market-only book. I remember talking to Dick Giordano, and he was just stunned at how well the book was doing sales-wise. And, of course, that was Jerry and Pat Broderick doing it at that time. And um, he was just amazed by it. And I remember saying, well, you know, it's a good book. Why wouldn't it do well? It's fun. It's got a good creative team and everything else, and he, he's a fun character. And if I, if I go back and look at it and – the potential of what Firestorm can be in the DCU. Um, I think as a character, we all, when I say we, I mean me and the editorial staff, you know, want to get him back to that point again. Um, at that time, he was much more important to the DCU than he is right now. We're trying to get there, and this is your chance to get in on what should be a fun ride and see whether or not we can pull it off and actually deliver. Those are definitely some good reasons, folks. So remember, October 24th, Hit your local comic shops or purchase the digital version. Get Firestorm, the Nuclear Men, or Fury of Firestorm, the Nuclear Men, number 13. Whoa, 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 the, uh, the match heads are going to go insane. Am I allowed to tell people this? Yes. Okay. Fantastic. Uh, all right. Well, anyway, we'll, fi- we'll talk at the end there. But okay. So that's it, folks. Go pick up The Fury of Firestorm, The Nuclear Man, number 13 on October 24th. And uh, Dan, thanks again for being here. We cannot tell you how much we appreciate this. I know the fans at home really, really enjoyed this interview. And, uh, you know, we'd love to have you back again sometime. I'd be happy to do it. Uh, we'll look forward to when you eventually do the uh, Aquaman versus Firestorm uh, Treasury Edition. We'll have you back when you do that. <laughs> oh, that would be so much fun. <laughs> there we go. We'll, we'll try and make that happen. We'll try and build up. We'll start a groundswell with the show. Sounds good. All right. Thanks, Dan. Thanks. My pleasure. Aquaman and Firestorm fighting crime together. Soak them down or burn them up. No one does it better. Whenever you find trouble, they'll always be there to catch them in a bubble or even torch their hair. Stand for truth and justice and see on land and air. Firestorm and Aquaman, they make a super pair. Aquaman and Firestorm, super friends forever. Yeah!
Hey, did he just turn down an invitation to join the superpowers team? It's not the first time, Firestorm. I've asked Cyborg to join us before. I don't believe it. The world is full of surprises, Ronald.